0: have your Bible and um, you like to look at the passage as we navigate through it, meet me in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 verse 12 is where we will be. Um, I've titled this message uh, Hospitality That Advances the Kingdom. Hospitality That Advances the Kingdom because uh, this morning we're going to see through the text, um, Jesus actually tells us that we are to throw parties. He tells us that we're to throw parties. Despite what you've heard about Christians or the church, uh, we are commanded to throw parties. But then he gives instructions on how these parties ought to look, how these events are meant to look. And so, as we're navigating through this passage, I, I want you to constantly be asking yourself this question Who's coming for supper? Who's coming for supper? Because that's the question that Jesus continually asks those that have gathered, who's coming for supper? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us before we jump in. Usually I read the text, but we're going we're gonna to walk through it uh, almost verse by verse, and we'll stop at some places, and I'll just unpack a little bit of what I believe Jesus is telling us as he gives us this command to throw parties, epic parties. Because hospitality advances the kingdom. And so join me as I pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me. That God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich. We thank you that it is relevant. That it is active and it continues to move and shape us. And so I ask this morning that we would open up our hearts to what you have. That we would hear from you clearly. Clearly. And so I pray against any distractions here this morning. It's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my mouth those things you have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May our worship be a sweet fragrance to you. And would you show us, as you always do, through your very word, our desperate need for you. In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name. Amen. Jesus tells us to throw parties. In fact, he's at a party when he's talking about this. When he talks about hospitality, he's at a party. Our text finds Jesus at a party. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And so before he unpacks, listen, how parties are meant to look, he starts by telling us, listen, actually, this is who not to invite. Now, Jesus was not, as it might first sound, discouraging normal Fellowship or the normal gathering normal community. He wasn't discouraging that he wasn't discouraging the gathering together of family and friends and loved ones In fact, he regularly accepted invitations to such gatherings We're told in scripture that he would regularly gather with Lazarus and Lazarus's sisters and we're told that he had amazing times with them What Jesus is against is the limiting of our guest list to family members, to friends, to people who can repay us. He forbids what makes up so much of our elite modern society. An endless round of giving and returning. This week is at your place, and next week it's at mine, and then yours again, and then at mine. That's what Jesus is against. The social quid pro quo, if you will. Dr. Kent Hughes uh, says this about this matter. And put on your seatbelts because it's about to get real. The powerful point Jesus is making is that one's social ethics should show whether one is a member of the kingdom of God or not. Elitism indicates a selfish, proud, shriveled soul. Reciprocation, the the your turn and then my turn, your turn and then my turn, as a primary goal is the product of immense self-focus. If we do not reach out to others who cannot benefit us, who cannot pay us back, we must ask ourselves if we are true believers. These are harsh words, but but my hope is that as we navigate through the text, you will see that, listen, what Jesus is saying is true. What Jesus is saying is true. It reveals whether we are of the kingdom or not. So, Jesus starts by saying, Listen, this is who not to invite. If you're going to throw a party, and you should, you should, don't invite people who are going to be able to repay you back. But then he begins to unpack, well, who then we are to invite. He's specific about the guest list. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame the blind. Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, and you will be blessed. If these people make up your guest list, you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now for those theological geeks, and I hope that many of you would be, you might find it interesting to know that this was the first time, the, the first mention of the resurrection in Luke's gospel. I find it interesting that, that Luke waits, waits to talk about resurrection until he first talks about a party. It's strategic, it's intentional, and it's incredibly important. See, what the host receives for his generous hospitality is immense. This is what Jesus is saying. He will be resurrected as one of the righteous at the end of the age. And he will be blessed. He will be blessed. But but if we read it in its original language, it's not a future thing. This, This blessing is not a future reality, but a current one. Yes, you'll be repaid at the resurrection. That is future. But then he says that you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Right through this passage, Jesus is distinguishing the difference between fellowship and hospitality. He's distinguishing the difference between fellowship and hospitality. And I believe the one leads to the other. The one leads to the other. Hospitality leads to fellowship. It leads to community. But I have to deconstruct a few things here. Because I believe we confuse the two. Many of us, when we talk about hospitality, we're actually describing community. When we talk about hospitality, we're actually describing community. Because when we hear the word hospitality, we don't associate it with its root meaning. And that that root meaning is the love for strangers. The love for strangers. And so, so many of us will go, no, listen, I'm incredibly hospitable. But it's the same friends that keep coming to your place it's the same family members that keep coming to your place it's the people that you're comfortable with it's the people that look like you that keep coming to your place that is not hospitality but rather community fellowship but let me let me make it plain let me make it plain let's look at the greek word for hospitality the greek word for hospitality is Philozinia. Philo Xenia. Now, this word is a word made of two words. That was kind of an inside joke. No one caught it. Thank you. It's a word made of, of two, philo and xenia. Now the word xenia is where we get the word xeno or xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. We get the word xenophobia from it. The fear Of strangers, the fear of foreigners. Now the word philo, the other word, comes from the word Philadelphia, which means the love of people, brotherly affection, the love of brothers and sisters. And so now if we were to put those two words together, philo, xenia, this means to love people who are different from you, to love the stranger, To love the foreigner. That's what it means to be hospitable. To show hospitality. And I believe we use this word incorrectly. Because we'll talk about being hospitable. But it's not the stranger that we're loving. It's the family member. It's those who we are comfortable with. Those we hang out with all the time. That is fellowship. That is community. I've made this mistake. I've made this mistake. Even as we talk about the eat and run. In our marketing of it, I believe it said feasting plus fellowship. When in actual fact, it's not, no, no, it should say feasting that leads to fellowship. Because we want to practice hospitality. Because when I'm up here and I'm talking about the eat and run, I'll go, listen, I want you guys to invite people who are not a part of this community. I want us to show hospitality. And so it should say this is feasting that leads to fellowship. That's how we practice hospitality. In fact, if we're serious about hospitality, then we would believe the words of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2, that says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Unaware. By showing hospitality, you might have entertained angels unaware. First Timothy chapter 3 talks about how leaders are to practice hospitality. That if you consider yourself a leader, then you should be practicing hospitality. That's how important it is. There's a difference. There's a difference between hospitality and fellowship. And I believe as Christians, we're called to do both. We're called to do both. Jesus in this passage calls out those who only pick the one. They only pick fellowship. And to be honest, they do a really bad job at it. He calls them out and he says, listen, no, no, no. When we throw banquets, when we throw parties, we're called to show hospitality. And this hospitality leads to community. True members of the kingdom of God are called to love God And love their neighbors as themselves. And remember, we don't define who our neighbors are. We don't define who our neighbors are. We're called to love God and our neighbors, but we don't define who our neighbors are. And so we should be practicing hospitality. And so Jesus starts by saying, listen, this is not who to invite but rather this is who you ought to invite when you throw a party, when you throw a banquet. But let me say, let me say, this party that Jesus was at, this banquet that he was at, this dinner party that he had attended, this was an incredibly awkward party. Incredibly awkward party. Now let me give some context before we continue, just so that you can accurately experience what was going on. See, Jesus was in the midst of a Sabbath dinner party that had grown quite intense. The party became tension-filled from the moment Jesus stepped in. We're told in verse 1 of Luke chapter 14 that they were watching him carefully as he walked in. It's almost like he he walks through the doors and then everyone's kind of like, okay, hold on, Jesus is here. All eyes on him. That's when the tension began to grow. It then escalated when Jesus healed a man of dropsy. Now remember, it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath day. And so Jesus heals a man of dropsy. Dropsy would be uh, what we call edema. If you're a doctor or practicing to be one, edema, this is a condition characterized by an excess of watery fluid collecting in the cavities or tissues of the body. So Jesus heals this man on a Sabbath. The tension escalates, but then he then silences his would-be critics with a skillful question and reference to their own rabbi practice of rescuing animals instead of rescuing human beings. He says to them, listen, listen. you guys, are, I know you're freaking out because I've healed this man on the Sabbath, but you guys are comfortable with rescuing animals and care nothing about those who are created in the image of God. He silences them. As if that were not enough. Jesus went on to criticize both the guests and the host. The guests for seeking the seats of honor. They were like, listen, uh, I want to sit close to the guest because it's a place, or close to the host because it's a place of honor. He then criticizes the host for inviting only those who could return the the favor. He says, look around. Look around. You've only invited those who can repay you. This is an incredibly awkward dinner party. Everyone in the room had been deliberately insulted by Jesus. It is reasonable to imagine that in the silence, uh, no one was eating, no one was drinking. It was kind of like just that awkward moment where it's kind of like, man, I'm just hoping that maybe this party ends or someone gets a phone call. Like, uh, this is awkward. The party was becoming a disaster. The host and his friends were silently enduring a festive meltdown. They were mortified. But then, a quick-tongued guest attempted to save the day with a religious outcry. There's always that one guy. There's always that one guy at the party who's like, man, this is super awkward. Let me say something without actually thinking through it. Verse 15 when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, we'll see in a moment that this man's words were artificial. They weren't sincere. It's religious language that he uses hoping to escape Jesus' onslaught. Because what he actually wanted to say Or maybe what he meant to say was, blessed are the likes of us who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Smiles, maybe even throws a amen. Thinking things are okay now, probably turns to the person on his left or right and says, can you now pass the tomato sauce? I've now sorted out everything. I've told Jesus what he wants to hear. But their confidence was misleading and Jesus could not let the outcry walk by because he cared for their souls. He knew that in their inmost being there was little desire for God's kingdom. So there at the Sabbath feast with the religious leaders at the table, Jesus delivers the parable of the great banquet to expose their true motivations and desires. Jesus cares for their hearts and their souls. That's why he tells the parable. And he starts, it, he starts it like a boss. Like all these parables. I mean, if I was with Jesus and I'd been hanging around with him for a while, whenever, whenever Jesus goes, and there once was a man, I just kind of know like, okay, it's about to get real. It's about to get real. So he does the very same thing. Verse 16, but he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now this man has enormous resources. He extends an invitation to his friends. The guest list is large. The menu extensive. Beverages flowing from the kitchen. Some of the fermented nature. And maybe a few craftily designed. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Verse 17, And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. This was a feast that no one wanted to miss. See, this great banquet is depicted as the ultimate kingdom banquet. That's what Jesus was talking about. The ultimate kingdom banquet. The supper of the Lamb. He makes reference to it in Luke chapter 13, verse 28. Luke, chapter 22, verse 16. And then we hear about it in Revelation, chapter 19, verse 9. Using the symbol of a feast for heaven is of great spiritual significance because it suggests eternal satisfaction. Even in this world, a a banquet or a party, a gathering of this nature means so much more than just food. I know that, you know that. When we gather, when we, when we go to someone's house, it's so much more than just the food. Yes, the food is incredibly important, but it's, it's about hanging out with one another, getting to know other people, hearing their stories, laughing together. So much more than food. And so when Jesus talks about this great banquet, he's talking about our eternal satisfaction, the supper of the Lamb. Theologian David Gooding says it like this. The metaphor of feasting as distinct from merely eating a meal assures us that no true potential appetite, desire or longing given to us by God will prove to have been a deception. But all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. The great banquet is a lavish, extravagant image of the kingdom of heaven that will be exceeded by its reality, a truly joyous satisfaction. And of course, the ultimate host will be Christ himself. This this great supper, this great banquet that Jesus talks about, listen, he says it's going to be amazing, but it's because the host will be Jesus himself. He makes that reference because he wants them to see it. He wants them to see it. let's go back to the story so the invites are sent out folks rsvp the party day comes up everything is set the servants are then sent to go tell all the people that were invited to come let us eat let us drink but we're told that regret after regret after regret is returned excuses are made Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. What a ridiculous excuse. What a ridiculous excuse. Because look, in the, in the Middle East uh, back then, and I believe even here today, no one buys land without going to go check it out first. And we're told here, yeah, listen, he just bought the land and then now he wants to go see it. Who does that? Listen, I've never bought land before, so I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but if I was to buy land, I'd, I'd probably first want to go check it out, see if I can if there's enough water or irrigation, if the sun is going to hit it quite nicely so that I can plant some stuff. I hope it's obvious that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, irriga- I'm like, what is irrigation? Where did that even come from? Um, but, but, but I would first go check the land before buying it. And here we're told, this man says, no, I have bought some land. Now I'm going to go see it. What a ridiculous excuse. But there's another excuse, verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, Again, who who buys ox or oxen before inspecting them? In the Middle East, they would first go and look and see how they perform on the land before purchasing them. Nobody just buys oxen and then is like, okay, I I hope they'll be okay. I hope they'll be fit enough to plow the land. No one does that. It would be like today, uh, maybe I'm into farming and then telling my wife, listen, I've just purchased five used tractors, but now I'm going to go check them out. I've already, you know, deposited the money and uh, the transfer's gone through, so I'm going to go check if they're legit. My wife would be like, that's ridiculous. First you check them out, then you make the payment. This was an excuse, a ridiculous excuse. To be honest, it was a slap in the face to the host. Because let's let's say, okay, let's say, yes, I, I wanted to buy land and I wanted to buy this oxen, these tractors. I've RSVP'd to a party that I'm going to. Surely I would tell the person that I'm buying these from, I'd go, listen, can we, can we move the date? Can I, can I maybe come see them in the morning because I've got an event in the evening? I'd make plans. It's a slap in the face to the host. Basically saying, I don't care about your party. I've RSVP'd, but I, I don't care about it. But I think the third excuse is the worst. Verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> okay. It's kind of scary, but okay. In a tightly knit community of the Middle East, a, a wedding calls for a celebration. It's incredibly important. Again, no different from us. No different from us. And so if I was to get married, people would know about it. People would know about it. I'd have a date. RSVPs would have been sent out or received, however that works. But this guy, this guy this guy's actually quite dangerous. Ladies, don't date a guy like this. He RSVPs to a dinner party, knowing that he's getting married on the same day. This is a brother that's like, you know, I'm just going to keep my options open. I'm not really sure. I don't know if I'm, I'm in. I don't. This is a ridiculous excuse. But what I want us to see here, what I want us to see is that the first two excuses had to do with material possessions. And the third one had to do with affections. Possessions and affections usually cover, usually cover everything that keeps us from the kingdom of God. It's our materials, our possessions, and our affections. Jesus offers the kingdom an everlasting feast of peace, a feast of help and guidance, of friendship, rest, victory, supremacy over all circumstances, a feast of joy and harmony where there will be no more death. Heaven is opened. There is immeasurable hope given. We call this salvation. Jesus offers us salvation. And yet many of us turn our backs on this feast, preferring to visit with our possessions and our affections. Now, I don't believe that this parable is meant to demean our possessions or our affections. In fact, no, 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 these are legitimate things. We ought to steward them well because they've been given to us by God. All our possessions, our relationships, all of this has been given to us by God and so we are to steward it well. In fact, one might say, For those who feast with Christ will be more fit to enjoy these things that Christ has given us. The field will be better tended, the oxen better utilized, your spouse more loved. But if our possessions and our affections are to be preferred over Christ, our souls are in danger. Our souls, our very souls are in danger. But here's the real reason. The real reason that the three individuals who were invited to the party who gave lame excuses, the real reason is that they just didn't want to go to the feast. Let's just keep it real. They, they just didn't want to go to the feast. Because in today's terms, if we were offered front row seats to an Adele concert or box seats to watch the Champions League final or a three-night stay at a five-star camping resort in the Maloti Mountains in Lesotho, or a week's shopping spree in Paris or New York, we would find someone to go check out the field. If we were offered those things, we would find someone else to go look after the oxen. We might even find someone to go hang out at home, (laughs) depending on what's on offer. We'll make a plan. We will make a plan because we we understand the value of being there. What Jesus is saying is, I am better than all those things. I am far better than all those things. Make no mistake, the real reason people turn away from the eternal feast is because they don't want to be there. They look at their possessions and their affections and they go, you know what, I feel like this is far better than Christ far better than what he has to offer. They believe the lie. And it's easy to make general applications to talk about others, but we often need to pause and ask the question, is this text talking about me? Are there things in my life that I look at and I go, I feel like that's better than what Christ has to offer? This relationship that I'm in, I feel like it's far better than what Christ has to offer. And so I make my own decisions in how I navigate through the relationship instead of attending the feast, attending the feast and and being with Christ. If Christ's banquet and a a large worldly estate were spread before us as options, which one would you choose? Why is it when Christ offers forgiveness and peace and eternal life and eternal feast, why do so few people respond? Why is it that people do not want the kingdom? It's because our understanding of what eternity is is skewed. Our understanding of what eternity is is skewed. We don't have the the right way to think about what eternity is. the, The spending... Eternity with Jesus. See, the religious leaders in Christ today act as, as if they wanted the kingdom. But the fact is they didn't. They were fronting. The hardest people to reach, the hardest people to share the good news of the gospel with are those who say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But not really understand what that means. They say one thing with their mouths, but their hearts are somewhere else. They show up to gatherings like this and they sing the songs, but their hearts are somewhere else. So let's go back to the story. So what happens? What happens after all these excuses have been made? I'm pretty sure, as Jesus is telling the parable, those who were seated in front of him didn't expect what he was to say. Because we're told that then the kingdom, remember the, the feast, this great banquet depicts the kingdom. We're told that the, the, the kingdom is then offered to the outcasts. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry, and rightly so. He became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame." The outcasts of the Jewish society were then invited in. The kingdom was then extended to them. He brings in the undesirables in the Jewish community. The host gives the command to go and call out the poor. The poor would not normally be invited to banquets. He he then says, go and call the crippled, those who cannot test oxen in the field. He says, go and get the blind and the lame. Those are those who would normally not get married. The kingdom is offered to the outcasts. See, their disabilities would have forced them into poverty, making them ragged outcasts. But now the extravagant feast, the the lavishly selected tables, the endless entrees of exquisite cuisine were set before many who could not even see them. Picture this. Just picture this. The lame and the crippled, they probably hobbled to the tables, their eager eyes reflecting the bountiful feast. Pitiful rags draped from their bent limbs as they eased awkwardly into the place. The kingdom was now offered to them. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because that's us. You might be sitting here and going, but hold on, I'm don't feel poor, not crippled, not blind. But spiritually many of you were. Spiritually many of you were. That's how the Bible describes those who have not crossed the line of faith yet. That spiritually you are poor. You are blind, crippled, and in desperate need of a savior. This is the beauty of the gospel. It is now extended to everyone. See, in Jesus' parable, the outcasts of society, those of less noble standing, were called to the table. But we're told that the great banquet still had many unfilled spaces. And so verse 22, and the servant said, "Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. This is why often when I pray, I go, I hope that we would be remembered as those who were found at the foot of the cross, crying out to others while we're on our knees saying there is so much more room. There is so much more room at the foot of the cross. It's because I see it here. The servant invites the outcasts of the Jewish society and then says, but there's still so much more room. Verse 23, and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Do you hear the transcultural language here? The highways and the hedges of those on the outskirts of the city, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the kingdom now being offered to them, that God is forming a family from all people for himself. It's this transcultural language. And so it will be in our eternal state when all the seats are filled by Jews and Gentiles, poor, crippled, blind, lame, then the feast will begin. What incredible rejoicing. What incredible rejoicing. That's why I love the words of Revelation chapter 19 when it says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, this great multitude of people from all walks of life like the roar of the many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I love those words. I love those words. That all have been invited to this great banquet. And that we are to feast with Christ. Will you accept the invitation? Now assuming that silence still existed at this dinner party, Jesus' final words must have been the final nail in the coffin for the dinner guests. I mean, this this is where Jesus hits the home run verse 24 for i tell you none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet those who were originally invited and made excuses they, they rsvp'd with their mouths but their hearts were far from the banquet he says those original ones they will not they will not they will not taste my banquet this was ex- an extremely personal confrontation An extremely personal confrontation. See, they were the original invited people, but not one of them would be admitted to Christ's meal unless they responded in repentance and faith. Unless they responded in repentance and faith. See, they loved their fields and their oxen and their homes far more than they loved God. They preferred their possessions and affections over Christ. They loved the world first. And now that Jesus the Messiah had come and was inviting them to a feast, they would have none of it. And so all their religious swagger and bravado was so empty. The very words of, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, was all just religious talk. It was all academic knowledge. It hadn't made its way to the heart. Their kingdom longing was counterfeit. Their true longings was for worldly comfort and convenience. Hence, Jesus' urgency in his method. He was confrontational because he ached for their repentance. He longed for their repentance. He longed for fellowship with them. Jesus practices hospitality so that he might have fellowship with you. So that he might move you from being a stranger to a guest to part of the family. He longed for their repentance. Some of you might read this and go, man, this seems harsh. It's because he longed for their repentance. The question for Jesus' hearers and for us is, do we really want to attend this feast? Or are other things more important? Our portfolios, our cars, our homes? See, it has cost Jesus everything to prepare this feast. Pain, tears, flesh and blood. Now he invites us to come and drink the blood that he has shed, to eat the bread that has cost him everything, his very body. Do we practice the same urgency? Do we long for people to respond to the invite? For those of you who have now crossed the line of faith, for those of you who have accepted the invitation, do we practice the same urgency? Do we long for people to know who Jesus is and to fellowship with him? Are we hospitable as Jesus was and continues to be? This was an act of hospitality on Jesus' side. He was extending this invitation to us. As strangers, as the scriptures actually call us, as enemies of God. Before we come to Christ, that's how the scriptures describe us. But yet he invites us in. He extends an invitation and says, I long to fellowship with you. Are we as hospitable as he was? Do we even know what that means? Are we the people who will take somebody out for coffee to listen to their problems? To meet somebody new in our home? Someone who's different from us? Who is not a part of this community? Will we invite them into our personal space just to listen to them? Do we welcome people in? You don't need a theological degree to do this. You don't need to be the leader of a church to do this. It's just the getting together with people, over coffee. Yet God, according to the text, can powerfully do something with that by simply practicing hospitality as Jesus did. Dr. John Piper, in a sermon that he once gave uh, titled Strategic Hospitality, this is what he says, when we practice hospitality, we experience the refreshing joy of becoming channels of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. Instead of becoming dead ends of God's grace and mercy and love. God has given us hospitality. If you've been saved, you become a channel of what God is doing. You participate in the great mission that he's on. That's what it means to practice hospitality. It's incredibly important. If you call yourself a Christian, if you've crossed the line of faith, it's not just about community, it's not just about gathering together, though so that's incredibly important. But it's also about being outward focused, practicing hospitality because the very gospel is one of hospitality. And so as I as I wrap up, let me let me give you four practical things that you and I can do. Four practical things that you and I can do to ensure that we're practicing hospitality. As we're being compelled by the gospel, that we're practicing hospitality. That if you're a Christian, and maybe you're starting to get the vision of what hospitality means, here are four things that we can do, and they're pretty simple. The first thing that you can do is you can invite people to your home. Invite people to your home, into your personal space. Now, I'm not talking about uh, people that are always in your home. No. No your colleagues, your neighbors. Invite them into your personal space. And I know it might come across as, as being weird. You might become the weird person. That lady or that guy that's constantly going, hey, do you want to come to my crib? Do you want to come to my place? Like, like I know this is the 10th invite, but bro, you want to come to my, it's like, dude, what are you doing? Do you have like a cult in your home? What, I know it's weird. And many people won't come, but, but some will. Some will. Practice hospitality in your personal spaces. The second one is begin to invite your colleagues and friends and neighbors and family members into your spiritual home. Now you might ask, what is my spiritual home here at Rooted Fellowship? It's our city groups and our Sunday gatherings. These are our spiritual homes. Come with me to this gathering. Hey, come. we, we got this thing that we're doing. Want to come check it out with us? Do you want to come to Hudson's? A bunch of us are going for happy hour. My city group's going to gather there. Do you want to come through? Invite them into your spiritual home. Why? Because then they get to experience the community of God. They get to see how we love one another, how we forgive one another, how we extend grace to one another. People long for this. They long for it. And they don't believe that the church is where they can find it. That's why they run to all these other things. And so if we invite them into our spiritual homes, It might be weird, because I'm I'm not the praying type. I don't believe in the whole Bible thing, but can you explain to me how you guys stay married? How do you guys do that? Can you explain to me how how you guys are from two different backgrounds? Society says that you should be at each other's throats. How do you love one another? Invite them into your spiritual home. Listen, I, I, I noticed recently, uh, if you drive out here, there's a KFC and a, um, something fishy and a Steers and a, one more. They make pizzas. Debonairs, there we go. Guys, when you meet someone new here at Rudy Fellowship, practicing hospitality might mean you going, hey, after church, do you want to go grab a pizza real quick? Hey, and I'll pay for it. I don't know if we have any new people in church, but I'm pretty sure they're going, I knew this was the day to come to church. I knew it. I just I felt it in my... In a, but, but that's what it means to practice hospitality. Hey, a bunch of us are going to go and grab some KFC. Do you want to come? No, we've we got you covered. I hope you realize that hospitality is expensive. It'll cost you something. It costs Jesus his life. So I think a streetwise two with an extra piece is not too bad. For some of us, like me, an introvert, it, it costs me everything. It's just, it's getting out of myself, out of my own selfish being and going, you know what, I usually don't, like for me, a great afternoon is sitting in front of the laptop watching series. But if I really want to practice hospitality, if I, if I want God to use me, that means getting out of my own skin and going, hey, you know what? Can I come with y'all? Let's go grab some coffee. I'll cover it. It'll cost you something. The third thing is just getting together and eating together informally. We should do that all the time, just randomly. Calling up one another and saying, hey man, listen, a bunch of us are going to Mug and Bean, go grab some coffee. They got this thing where you can just keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking and pay one price. Let's all go. Invite some of your friends who don't know Jesus. We should do this informally. But here's the problem. Us middle class suburban South Africans with our so important titles and so important lives, we want everything planned out, bullet points, an agenda. Down to five minutes because we're so important and we have these important laughs. And so this, this idea of being spontaneous is like, no, it freaks me out. Listen, no, 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 no. no. Let me check my calendar. Maybe two weeks from now we can do it. I hear so, so many of us talk about, man, we should have spontaneous worship. Yeah, maybe we should have spontaneous hospitality. And so when that happens, we're moving people from being strangers to guests and from guests to being part of the family. Man, that's something to worship about. We should practice spontaneous hospitality. And then the last one is maybe, maybe some of y'all need to consider hosting a city group in your home. You don't need to be a leader or a facilitator of that city group. Just say, hey, listen, I can host a city group in my home. And then take a back seat as God changes lives. You might be sitting here going, what, my tiny little home, my tiny little room? Yes. Because God will use that. God will use that. Those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much. God will use that little home and that little living room to do some amazing things. Just go, hey, listen, I'll host something. I'll host an Eat and Run. I think I can cram like six people in my living room. We'll have to sit on the floor. But I'll do it. I'll host and eat and run. If I was to summarize all these four things, I'd just say, guys, we just do it. Take that step. If you truly believe in the gospel, which is an act of hospitality, then we too should turn to others and do the same. Just do it. I want to transition as Bes comes up to so one of the sacraments that we as the church are called to practice regularly. And only up until this past week as I was preparing this, I realized that the sacrament, what we call communion, is an act of hospitality. It's an incredible act of hospitality. I'd never seen this before. Communion is Hospitality, think about it. Why, why do we call it the Lord's Supper? Why do you think the first communion happened around a table? The Lord's Supper, it's an act of hospitality. Now, what is the Lord's Supper made of? It's common stuff like bread, wine, juice. It's common stuff. You can get this stuff anywhere, guys. There's nothing special about it. But yet, when it's dedicated to God, when it's used by God, these common things become a vehicle of God's incredible power. They become a vehicle of God's incredible grace. And that's what hospitality is. Being gracious to others and watching God do something more powerful than we could ever imagine. So not only does Jesus practice hospitality to get us into the kingdom, For those of you who've crossed the line of faith, that was an act of hospitality on Jesus' part. He extended an invitation to you when you were a stranger so that you might become a guest. And now you're a family member. But then he leaves us with these hospitality elements to remind us, to remind us of the good news of the gospel. That's why he calls us to do this regularly so that we might be reminded of the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made for us. And so as we're about to partake in communion, I really want you to think about this. If you've crossed the line of faith, ask yourself this question. Am I a channel of God's grace or have I become a dead end? What are those things that are keeping me from being hospitable, from feasting at the table, from allowing others to come and participate in what God is doing? What are those possessions? What are those affections? And then cry out to God and ask Him to renew your heart again. But then for those who haven't crossed the line of faith, if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you're journeying, maybe you're thinking about it, I want you to hear this, ex- this invitation that's been extended to you. That God is saying, whatever you're running to, hoping that that's what you will find life in, you won't. You'll find it in me. It won't be easy. but knowing that your life is now in Christ and that we long for that day where the great banquet will occur. Every tribe and every nation and all languages gathered together to feast together. That's what gives you hope. And so on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took the bread and gave thanks and then broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the Wine and gave thanks and said, this is the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take this in remembrance of me, of the sacrifice that has been made for you. But hear this. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't crossed the line of faith, if you haven't RSVP'd and accepted the invitation, then don't partake. Don't partake. Don't be like those religious leaders. Rather sit and, and just go, you know Jesus, I just want to journey a little bit more. I'm not there yet, but I want to journey a little bit more. I'm thankful for this community that will continue to practice hospitality and make this a safe place for me to come and journey. And so I'm going to pray for us. And after I'm done praying, and you feel comfortable, please partake in communion. And remember the great sacrifice that's been made for us. And then we'll close out with a song. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice made for us, this great act of hospitality. Your word reminds us often that that before coming to you, Jesus, we were enemies. We wanted nothing to do with you. We believed the lie that the world has so much more to offer. But I'm so thankful that for many of us, you've transformed our hearts and that we can see you for who you are. The true life giver. And so Lord, we, we come now as we partake in communion saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Knowing that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from your love. And that there's nothing that can be done to us that will separate us from your love. Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.